Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Lori Armstrong, CEO and Chief Clinical Officer of Inspire Nurse Leaders, about the role of nursing in patient safety. This episode is presented as part of National Nurses Week in partnership with Capella, Fresenius Cabi, Simpler, and Vocera. And now, on to the interview. This is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Lori Armstrong, CEO and Chief Clinical Officer of Inspire Nurse Leaders. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Jay. So glad to be here. Uh, glad to have you. And I was wondering if we could start things off by um, just having you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at uh, Inspire Nurse Leaders. Sure. Well, I've been a nurse for a long time, um, a few decades more than I'd like to admit. <laughs> um, all of a sudden, it added up to, to about three decades. And um, so I've spent my career truly dedicated to the patient and the family improving outcomes. And I went the real gener- general route of typical route of manager, director, and then I've had the honor of my career to be a chief nursing officer at some of the nation's leading academic medical centers for about 15 years. But I was always along that career path fascinated by the link between nursing care, nursing leadership practice, and patient and family outcomes. So um, that was the focus of my doctoral work. And right before the pandemic, great business timing, um, I decided to leave my chief nursing role and really focus full time on supporting nurse leaders Um, in their practice so that they could be better equipped to be successful for themselves, their teams, and the patients and families they serve. So at Inspire Nurse Leaders, we do just that. We do leadership coaching, leadership onboarding, and have a full curriculum of leadership development that helps nurse leaders focus on quality and patient safety, leading teams, and um, managing the budget. So uh, we're busy right now. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Um, well, let's jump into it then. You know, how how do nurses fit into a healthcare organization's patient safety and quality efforts? You know, what are you seeing, and you know, where does it need to go? Well, you know, I love that question. First of all, I could couldn't have scripted it better myself, actually, Jay. So so where where do nurses fit in the quality and patient safety equation? I want to say that they are a key and critical component or a key success factor in the quality and patient safety um, equation. And in fact, sometimes I would say the nurse is the most vital or the most important component of the quality and patient safety equation. And, you know, it's not that I don't respect as a nurse my physician colleagues, respiratory therapy colleagues. Um, You know, even I always believe very strongly that environmental services plays a key role, right, in keeping our patients safe. But I would say that the nurse comprises the biggest segment of any hospital workforce. And even globally, nurses are responsible for the majority of the care that is delivered throughout the world, but in a hospital, whether it's at a, in a physician, a clinic office, in the emergency room on a stretcher or in the hosp- at the hospital bedside, the nurses really have a unique role because they spend the most time with the patient, so they're critical. And if we want the best outcomes for our patients and families, that bedside nurse must be invested in, 
focused on and listened to. So I'm a firm supporter and even, in fact, Inspire Nurse Leaders has an eight-hour curriculum helping nurse leaders understand better the components of how to deliver quality of care, how to contribute to, how to, contribute to quality improvement efforts. So um, they're a key component. And obviously, you know, we don't need to go over what kind of, uh, you know, a year plus we've had, but because of COVID, but what kind of challenges has, has this pandemic placed on nurses in addition to the ones they face every day? Wow. Wow. We don't have enough time, Jay. You said <laughs> I didn't have like all day. I need that. Um, you know, I think this is actually a very profound moment in nursing. Um, it's, you know, we've all changed. It doesn't matter if you're a nurse, a physician, a non-healthcare person, we're all different people coming out the other side of COVID. And thank God we're coming out the other side. But in terms of nursing, this is a really, really profound and poignant moment for us as a profession. And so, you know, even in the early days, you know, the early March of 2020, those emerging initial images of nurses with bruises and marks from um, the masks, um, emerging images of really scared nurses running to the pandemic, not away. So being in those early days in the ICU with the first admitted COVID plus patients, an unknown novel virus, right? Mm -hmm. And day after day for a year living through, you know, PPE shortages and staffing shortages and just fear, utter fear of the impact of the virus, that coupled with the witnessing of human suffering and death has really, really made a great impact on nurses individually and nurses as a whole for the profession. So, you know, when you take a pulse, if you will, sorry for the pun, but if you take a, take a pulse on nurses right now, um, it's, there's some concerning data coming out, Jay, about burnout and stress and exhaustion and feeling of being overwhelmed and even even an increasing percentage of nursing over over a quarter of nursing staff um, surveyed said that they were thinking of leaving so we really have to take pause particularly leaders people who are leading our hospitals leading care wherever it's being delivered we have to take pause and figure out how do we support our people differently? How do we get through this and come out maybe even a little stronger? Really, really important. Um, yeah, so, so you mentioned burnout and, you know, that's in, in my discussions with, uh, you know, other sort of healthcare leaders and, and experts, that comes up again and again, caregiver burnout, right. cognitive overload. Um, you know, yes. what, what are some ways to address these problems? Because they're obviously huge ones. Well, I, I agree completely. So let's address burnout first. Um, and what I'm trying to make clear to colleagues and to organizations that I'm working with is that burnout is not new in healthcare. It's not new. It's not a result of the pandemic. Yes, it's, it's been exacerbated by the pandemic, but um, 
back in 2017, actually, the American Nurses Association was so concerned about the health and well-being of nursing in general that it launched a national uh, program, national dialogue, national conversation about how nurses shouldn't have ill health as a result or a byproduct of, of practicing nursing. And it was called, it is called the Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation program. All right. So the American Nurses Association, they represent, uh, you know, the 4 million nurses in this country were concerned about it pre-pandemic. And then, I'm sorry, I'm giving you all this data. I hope everyone listening no, isn't falling is asleep, but pay attention. Okay. So it wasn't a, it's not a new problem. So back in 2017, then nursing leaders in this country, along with our physician partners, published um, through the National Academy of Medicine some really concerning data. In the um, publication is called Taking Action Against Clinician Burnout. And in that report, it cited 35 to 54% of both nurses and physicians were reporting substantial symptoms of burnout. Okay, so that's in 2019 before the pandemic, 35 to 54% of nurses and physicians reporting burnout. That is sobering in itself, right? Yeah. I have, I have chills just saying those numbers to you. And it's gotta be and higher then, now, right? Oh my God, so much higher. And um, so when the ANA did, again, a pulse check, probably about just about two months ago, um, back in March of 2021, so very recently, there were over 20,000 responses, frontline nurses, over 20,000 people responded, and over half of them were exhausted. Almost half of them were overwhelmed. And again, um, nearly 30% wanted to leave the profession, and that makes me so sad. So it really supports a call to action for organizations and leaders to take notice and say to themselves, okay, how are we, how are our nurses feeling and physicians, anybody providing care to the patient and their family, how are they feeling? What can we do better and or differently to really affect change since it's not a new problem. It's only at, you know, crescendo levels right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. And, you know, as a nurse leader, Jay, we're all trained. We're all trained to refer people to employee assistance program. Every hospital has it, right? You know, some programs are more comprehensive than others, but we all have those programs. And I, can ca I can't even count the number of times I have personally referred one of my direct reports or recommended them to refer one of their direct reports to employee assistance. Print out the policy, give them the number and have them go. That's not enough anymore. It's not enough. We have to understand what the program offers. We have to enhance the programming. And most importantly, Jay, I've been thinking a lot about this, we have to be trained ourselves as leaders on how to recognize the signs and symptoms of burnout. I'm not an expert. I'm not afraid to admit that I'm not an expert and I have to learn how to be able to assess that in a person. 
because it's so critical, so important. And obviously, you know, it doesn't just affect that individual. Uh, it can no. have an effect on the care they're giving, um, you know, if they're burned out, if they're exhausted, you know, both. Um, you know, how can um, organizations, you know, obviously you're looking for signs, you know, what can you do when you spot these signs, um, you know, in, in some of right. your staff? I, I really love that um, exploration of the topic, especially when you think about the direct link to quality and patient safety outcomes. I think data is critical. And even if I just pull out one of the signs of burnout is that feeling of exhaustion. When people are exhausted, they're not practice, they're not at their best, okay? When you're exhausted, you may forget things that you've learned. You may not be able to focus and pay attention. And when you have someone's care in your hands, and in many instances, in any clinical unit, but especially like the emergency department or an intensive care unit, you have people's lives in your hands. And if you're feeling exhausted and you're not functioning at your best, that has a direct impact. And the data has been around a long time, Jay, about the link between fatigue mm -hmm. and exhaustion and medical errors, fatigue and exhaustion and on serious safety events. So the risk, the risk is real. It's real. Do you see in, you know, I don't know if you're visiting places yet, but if, you know, talking to people, are, is the strain lessening? I mean, I know that there are still hotspots around the country where right. you know, the number of cases is still very high, you know, and I think, you know, in other spots, maybe it's lessened, but, you know, is that sort of intensity uh, lessening somewhat? I think, I think the intensity overall, overwhelming majority is the intensity is, intensity is lessening. Although I've been on some um, uh, Zoom meetings this week with colleagues in Detroit, with colleagues in Minnesota, and then with a new colleague in Ontario, Canada. And the numbers are starting to go Ontario. up a little. Oh yeah, Canada. I have. I have to be honest. I don't know why I'm confessing things on this recorded <laughs> podcast. Day, I bring that out of you. I, oh my gosh. Um, I didn't know about how um, how the the improvement or the the improving of COVID numbers just was not happening across Canada. I really didn't know that. But Detroit and Minnesota, you know, we've seen a little bit on our news feeds, but the numbers are going up. So there are still hot spots. But honestly, the overwhelming majority of um, places are kind of what I've been calling coming out of the fog, you know, starting to kind of dust themselves off and trying to look ahead, seeing more clarity about what the future looks like. But I think that, you know, even before we decide what we can focus on, we have to process what we've all been through. And um, as I'm working with a lot of organizations right now, um, because it's where start we're about to launch into National Nurses Week, mm -hmm. even National Nurses Month for May, and a lot of um, conversations with nurse leaders as I prepare presentations and meetings is that as they start to talk about what we've all been through, 
the, the, the tears start coming. And this is from nurse leaders and chief nursing officers of premier organizations. And when you stop and think about what we've been through and how you want to recognize people, it's it starts to come back. So I think there's still some, you know, we can go forward and try to lead and get back to some projects and get back to kind of some normalcy, but there's still some processing of what we've been through that has to occur before we can turn the page on COVID-19. Um, and how much of the stress on nurses and other frontline caregivers was, you know, due to the fact that early on for much of 2020, if not all of 2020, there was no, they weren't vaccinated. There was no, you know, they were kind of running into, you know, I think you, you sort of used a firefighter analogy where they were running right. into a fire, but they didn't have any equipment, you know, like they were, right. um, you know, and now you at know, least now they have, they have that much anyways. Uh, the vaccine. Yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely some um, feeling of being safer for those who have chosen to get vaccinated, there's that feeling, that sense of security. Um, but early on, you know, without the vaccine, even though the vaccine was only a hope back then, right, right. I'm not sure any of us really believed it could be figured out within a year. It's just so exciting to see that there's a path forward with the vaccine. Um, but early on, I, it was hard to see a light at the end of the tunnel, especially in the areas of the country that had PPE shortages. Right, I was just gonna say um, that. Oh my God, I mean, I really talked to a lot. And even if your hospital had enough PPE, the supply chain was so broken, it was so taxed that you weren't sure you were, you know, you might have enough today, but having it enough next week might not be the case. And in the early, in the first probably six or seven months of the pandemic, I went back into the hospital and was functioning at the regional level at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And, you know, the first couple of months of my focus was PPE all day, every day, most, mostly N95 masks. And being, we just, you know, we were no different than any other organization, but making sure we had a reliable supply of deliveries was a big, big challenge, big challenge. Well, you know, and you mentioned the masks and that, that seemed to be kind of the focal point. And, you know, some of the masks we had weren't good, weren't the right kind of masks. And obviously there was, you know, comp competition and, and people were getting sure. undercut and, you know, it was, it was a total mess. So, um, you know, that, and that's some, something that's, you know, if you're a nurse, that's out of your control. I mean, that's, you know, you're just kind of hoping that, you know, your, your facility can provide that for you. But, you know, in a lot of cases it, you know, it was way beyond their level. It was, you know, well, statewide or federal. Well, 100%. And, you know, what I never experienced myself, first of all, we're so privileged. Our health care in this system in this country now, is it perfect? It's far from perfect. Mm -hmm. But we don't often run out of supplies. We don't, that's just not been part of our conversation normally. You might have shortages now and again if there's, you know, areas of the country, there's a hurricane or something like that. But normally you can access the equipment and supplies that you need. As a nurse leader, I never, ever, I mean, it was hard for me to fathom that some of our staff didn't, the shelves were empty for some of the things that they needed. It's even hard for me to say now, like, honestly, it just makes my stomach hurt thinking about what we've lived through. Now, we've learned a lot. 
but especially in the early days, COVID-19 was a global issue. So yeah. it wasn't just our little hospital in our community in certain region of the country. Everybody was vying for the same thing. And it just, it really revealed the vulnerability that all of us had, all of us. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, running out of supplies. I mean, in India right now, they're running out of oxygen in hospitals. Um, it's it, it's you know, really, it's it it's unbelievable. And the fear, and I saw a headline today, and, you know, I try not to be a read a headline and believe it kind of person, mm -hmm. but the headline said some patients in India were being left to fend for themselves. And how sad that is. It made me want to Made me want to run and go help, but I, I, I'll, Jay, I'll let you know if, we, if I do that or any of my colleagues, but um, it's just unfathomable yeah. that that is happening, really. And I just think it's a call to action for all of us to do our best to continue to make a difference as best we can or even expand our influence. I'm working a lot with nurse leaders right now in their teams to really solidify the, the impact of their leadership practice. One of the things we learned at Inspire Nurse Leaders early on, because we did a national survey and I published a white paper about, I think it was probably October of 2020. So in the fall of the first phase of the pandemic, and what nurse leaders were telling us in this national survey was that lack of education and training was one of their top three concerns. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of nurse leaders, me included, got kind of thrown or asked into leadership, not because we had these great leadership skills, but because we were great clinicians. So we didn't always have the proper, how do you lead people? How do you actually improve quality and patient safety? You know, some people were never trained on which quality improvement models work best for them, right? Mm -hmm. How do you manage a budget? And the nurse leaders spoke loud and clear that that's one of their top three concerns. So we've been really busy providing that education and training for nurse leaders so they can, they can be stronger, so their teams can be stronger. And it's been challenging too because nobody's been traveling anywhere. So there's no, you know, normally you'd go to a conference and, you know, you'd send it, you know, maybe your nurse, you know, your, your direct, your uh, directors or, you know, some of your staff to, you know, to get this education and bring it back and people haven't been able to do that. So uh, I'm sure exactly. that adds, just adds to the challenge, right? It does add to the challenge and it kind of, I hate to use buzzwords, Jay. I don't like buzzwords, but that, <laughs> One of the bu COVID buzzwords, I think, was pivot. You had to mm -hmm. pivot. And we have this great um, curriculum. We've partnered with leading organizations, University of Kentucky, American, um, uh, the Association of Critical Care Nurses. Um, and we developed this content and we pivoted. You know, it was, it was, the vision was to deliver it, come to the hospital and deliver it to hospital leaders, nurse leaders specifically to help improve. But during COVID, we pivoted and went into the studio and filmed all of them. I've got, I, I'm very blessed to have colleagues, um, internationally sought after faculty who were committed to building this curriculum. It's um, across five pillars, um, 
leading people, quality and patient safety, managing the budget, professional practice, and the care experience. So we have over 40 courses that now can be delivered online on demand. And um, we just thought it was at least something small that we could provide nurse leaders to your point of they can't get to conferences. So it's there readily on demand for them. So would you say there's a shortage of nurse leaders or just nurse leaders who don't have enough education and training? I'm going to answer that question by saying yes. <laughs> I think I think it's a combination. Yeah. Um, that there and the shortage. I don't know how much worse the shortage of qualified, experienced nurse leaders there are right now, but the data going forward is pretty sobering, Jay. Um, there, the average age of the just the frontline nurse is 50 right now. 50, the average age of a nurse. So nurse leaders typically have 20, at least, you know, 10 or 20 years, the more seasoned nurse leaders. So many of them are getting to retirement age. So the prediction is that um, the need for seasoned and expert nurse leaders is going to be um, multiplied um, by the year 2030. So we're trying to work really fast and help prepare and support organizations as they lose seasoned nurse leaders that at least the oncoming or their present nurse leaders are very well trained. And you mentioned earlier, you know, sort of reports or, you know, uh, you know, I think you had uh, survey results of, you know, a yes. lot of folks considering leaving the profession. I mean, yes. how difficult mm -hmm. is it going to be to retain that workforce and then attract new nurses to the profession? Great, great question. So retain. This is one of my favorite topics. How do you retain frontline? If, if the prediction is that um, there are 25% of nurses who are thinking of leaving, the other thing, Jay, I didn't mention was that we're having trouble keeping up with the demand for nursing. Mm -hmm. So our supply and demand is, is very misaligned right now. We can't um, train and graduate new nurses fast enough to meet the demand. And there's a couple of reasons for that, but we can't keep up with the demand. So the nurses that are practicing, we need to retain them. And it's critical that hospitals and nurse leaders in particular are spending time specifically on how to engage nurses. So nursing engagement. Um, employee engagement is not new. We've all heard about it. We've all taken the Gallup surveys about, do you have what you need to do your job? Have you been thanked in the last seven mm -hmm. days? Do you have a best friend at work? All those you know, questions that we've all answered. Nursing engagement looks a little differently right now um, because of the shifting demographics of nurses. Their majority of our workforce are millennial generation. And we hospitals really need to do a gut check right now about do we really know what makes millennial, the millennial nursing workforce tick? It's different than what baby boomers or you know, even older veterans, the, what made them tick is a little different. And this generation of nursing workforce is highly committed to their profession. They're very, you know, you hear millennials aren't loyal. 
In fact, the data tells us they are loyal. They just might not be loyal to one organization. They're loyal to the profession. They're, they're committed to making a difference. They're very purpose-driven. And in hospitals, that's not always how engagement or employee satisfaction has been designed. So we really have to take pause and make sure we understand what, how to engage the millennial workforce. And there are some key strategies that I share with people, but um, with um, organizations, it's, it's definitely doable. It's actually a pretty exciting time for nurse engagement right now. And how about just attracting, you know, new nurses, uh, you know, right. I think numbers are down, you know, in nursing school yes. and, you know, is it just that, you know, the profession looks too difficult and people don't, are, are just kind of scared to take it on or like what, you know, what right. can you do to, to turn that around? I want to be very careful here. I don't want to diss the media. But on the news, if they could just show a few very professional and happy and engaged <laughs> nurses, I would be very thankful. <laughs> but the major, overwhelming majority are tired and exhausted and discouraged nurses. That's how we've been portrayed, portrayed many times, not all, uh, many times throughout the pandemic. And oh my God, we're all so thankful for the recognition and you know the clapping i just remember hearing and seeing the clapping like across the globe whether it was italy or new york city it was wonderful um but attracting i think there are some cultural and systemic issues that we must address in nursing if we're going to continue to attract people to our profession the um, burnout, the health and well-being, our commitment to health and well-being has to be talked about. You know, I'm not sure we're ever going to solve it 100%, right. but we have to talk about how important it is and the changes that we're making to the profession in order to attract um, the newer generation. Um, I think we have to reinvest in innovating nursing education. You know, we've trained nurses similarly for many decades. And innovation has to happen in how we train new baccalaureate prepared um, new nurses. And it's happening. These conversations are all happening, Jay. We just have to make sure that we communicate and share that broadly so that we attract, you know, elementary school people wanna say, I'm, I wanna be a nurse. I wanna make a difference high schoolers, that we have programs that they fully understand exactly what new nursing looks like going past the pandemic. It's really critical. And do you feel that hospital healthcare administration is, is getting that message and is, you know, working to kind of address those issues you just raised? Um, I want to say I'm going to be bold here and I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say no, just because it's not a nationwide effort. We have some pockets of amazing things. I spoke with leadership at Meridian Health in the Northeast not that long ago. They are doing amazing things with multiple, multiple, I think they said 25, but don't quote me on that but multiple, multiple schools of nursing in the New Jersey area. It's amazing. And they have some really great best practices. 
And I'm sure there are many other examples, but it's just not, it's just not been adopted across the nation enough for us to make sustainable change. It's just not enough right now. And we have to invest in nursing. There are a few um, bills on the floor to fund the profession of nursing, the way we educate and train right now. Um, so I think that in terms of a national conversation, it's going to take government support mm -hmm. so that every hospital or healthcare system in the country, every university and college that's training nursing can benefit and have the funding that they need to do things a little bit differently going forward to be successful in the future. Funding is an, is an imperative, Jay. Yeah, definitely. And would you say you're optimistic about the future, even though, you know, there's a lot of challenges that, the, you know, the profession faces? I am so optimistic. I'm, and I'm not exaggerating. I am so optimistic that it actually kind of gets me up in the morning about, about the future of nursing. And the reason I say that, Jay, is because, you know, nursing has captured global attention because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just, we've seen so much tragedy through the pandemic, but I think the global attention that the nursing profession has gotten is kind of one of the silver linings. If there can be a silver lining, we've gotten attention. The role has been cemented and solidified. And what I share with people is we've got to hold on to that attention and do something with it. Mm -hmm. Make a difference. Use your voice that we've so, so well earned through the pandemic. That's why I'm so optimistic about it, because I think we've all been empowered and we, we want to just make it better for every patient, every family and the next generation. Well, I think that's a good point to, uh, to end things on. Lori, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Jay, thank you. It's really, really been a pleasure. And that wraps up episode 28 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join me next time. Thanks to our partners, Capella, Fresenius Copy, Simpler, and Vocera. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.